evidence and answers. At the Last Supper, Jesus gave new meaning to the Passover meal. The next day he was crucified at about the time the Passover lambs were being sacrificed at the Jerusalem temple. There is tremendous meaning behind both events. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb was a symbol for mankind's future salvation, while Jesus on the cross was the fulfillment of that salvation. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. The last time we were together, Pat and his guest, John Blassingame, began discussing the significance and new meaning Jesus gave to the Passover. Now let's conclude this interview with part two. A new covenant has come in which God has created a covenant community, and he's done this through some kind of sacrifice. Now we can look back at the bread that Jesus had said, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And we can, in a sense, identify that sacrifice that Jesus had made with himself. So instead of the bread being the bread of affliction, if you remember I mentioned earlier, the bread traditionally for Israel was known as the bread of affliction. And what the Israelites would say, or what the host would say, when it comes to the breaking of bread in the traditional Passover meal is, quote, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers had to eat as they came out of Egypt, end quote. Now Jesus does not say that, or at least we don't have record of him saying that. He instead says, this is my body, given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Now, just as the old covenant had been established with a blood sacrifice in which the body of a lamb was killed, Jesus identifies his affliction or his body as to be broken for the disciples and ultimately for the covenant community, which ultimately signifies the establishment of a new covenant through Jesus's sacrifice. And it centralizes on Jesus's sacrifice rather than on previous Israelite experience. Right. So this is pretty significant here what's going on. I hope people understand when the Last Supper was occurring, it was actually on the Passover. And right. they're celebrating this Passover, which is one of the most significant Jewish festivals that they've been celebrating for over a thousand years. And suddenly here's Jesus on this night giving new meaning to one of right. the most significant celebrations on the Jewish calendar. So it's pretty significant what's going on here and how Jesus is giving new meaning to these elements here, these symbols here. Now there's a third one, the lamb. Right. Tell us about that and how Christ indirectly or implicitly brings new meaning to that one. That is a feature of the Passover meal that is not explicitly identified at the Last Supper. If you read the synoptic accounts, which is where you get the accounts of the Last Supper, you don't explicitly see any reference that Jesus makes to the Passover lamb. Now we have to ask the question, why is that? If this is the critical feature of the Passover, why is it that Jesus doesn't make any reference to the Passover lamb? And that brings me to another point that I want to bring up, which is there's a hermeneutical, which is just a fancy way of saying there's an interpretational issue at play when we look at the Passover and the New Testament. So it looks like the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke identify Maundy Thursday, the Thursday of the Last Supper, as the Passover meal. However, it looks like John's gospel, as well as an allusion that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 5, seems to identify 
Good Friday, so the day of Jesus' crucifixion, as the day of the Passover meal. And so it looks like we have a split here between when was the Passover meal? Was it on Thursday or was it on Friday? Is it possible that they could have been on both? Now, there are various ways of resolving this issue, but suffice it to say that we want to affirm the theological implications that arise from the Passover meal being on both Thursday and Friday. Now, we want to do that because if we can affirm that the Passover meal did occur on Maundy Thursday, then we can affirm the theological implications that Jesus more or less brings about when he reframes the Passover celebration in terms of the bread and the wine, right? We can look at the Last Supper as a reformulation of the Passover meal and deduce whatever theological conclusions we can and uphold them with firmness and veracity. Now, on the other hand, we also want to, to affirm the idea that Good Friday was also a Passover day, not just because the Apostle John, in writing his gospel, seems to allude to the idea that Jesus dies at the same time as the Passover lambs were slaughtered, but because Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 specifically identifies Jesus as the Passover lamb. Now, what does this mean? This means that when we ask the question, all right, we have the bread and the wine at the Last Supper, but where is the lamb? We have to look not to Thursday, but to Friday to find the answer, which means that where's the lamb? The lamb is being crucified on the cross. And that's a significant idea that we have to wrestle with, especially as we look back at the Old Testament and we consider the significance of the lamb in the Passover celebration. So the lamb in the Old Testament was the redeeming feature in the Passover celebration. The lamb was that feature of the Exodus that in essence saved the people. So if you are not familiar with the story, what happened was God had given nine plagues throughout Egypt and Pharaoh had not yielded to release the Israelites as Moses had asked that he do several times. So what God does is he says, I'm going to give a 10th plague and this plague is going to be the plague that releases my people from Egypt. And that plague was the sacrifice or the death of the firstborn of every family in the entire land. Now, the critical thing here is that the Lord was going to pass through the land indiscriminately. It wasn't as though he was going to look at his people Israel and pass over them simply because of their nationality. That wasn't the case. He was going through the land indiscriminately, taking the life of every firstborn, even the firstborn of the animals as he passed through the land. And this was going to be an incredibly destructive act. But what he says to the Israelites is, if you obey my instructions, when I see your households, I will pass over you, which is where we get the name Passover. But if you obey my instructions, when I see that you have obeyed my instructions, I will pass over your household. Now, the instructions that he had given the Israelites related to the Passover lamb, what the, the Israelites were supposed to do was sacrifice a Passover lamb and there were specific instructions for what type of lamb, lamb it had to be, when it was supposed to be sacrificed, as well as the unity of the people in sacrificing this Passover lamb. And they were supposed to take the blood of the Passover lamb and paint it, in essence, on their door frames so that when the angel of the Lord came through Egypt in the 10th plague, wipe out the firstborn of every family, he would see this blood, recognize that some kind of sacrifice had already been made, and then pass over these houses. And that is the reason why the Israelites were saved. That is the reason why their firstborn were not killed 
like the firstborn of the Egyptians were, was because they had blood posted on their doorframes. Now, what does this mean? When we get to the New Testament, the identification of Jesus as the Passover lamb signifies something soteriologically, which is just a fancy way of saying it signifies something for our salvation. We can picture Jesus in the same way that the Old Testament Israelites at the time of the Exodus pictured the Passover lamb. Jesus' death, just like the Passover lamb's death, has saving impact on our lives. And it has saving impact because what we can actually affirm is that the wrath of God is akin to the way it spread through Egypt, will one day spread through all of mankind indiscriminately. And it does so because of sin. And, you know, we can talk about that. Uh, we can talk about how the wages of sin is death, which is what the wrath of God comes to do. It comes to bring death to us. But there is a salvation that God is providing. And we look at the context of the Passover. If we can translate it to the context of the New Testament in Jesus' death, we can better understand it. The sacrifice that God is providing is Jesus as the Passover lamb who dies on the cross, whose blood has atoning significance for us. And by atoning, I mean his blood has significance to the effect that it can pacify or make amends with the broken relationship between us and God. So when God sees that blood applied to each individual, he passes over them because they have already been justified, which is a fancy way of saying they've already been made right before him. Yes, uh, those are some powerful images there. Right. When you really understand it, that the Passover lamb, if you can picture them being killed on the eve of the Passover there at the temple and the blood atoning for the sins of the people symbolically, and the true Passover lamb, Christ, being crucified that night on the cross and his blood being shed and those two going on. What, what powerful imagery there when you come to understand right. it. And you also mentioned that, you know, the sacrifices, the blood of the lambs, as Hebrews 10 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrifice of the lambs and the shedding of their blood was only symbolic. It did not right. fully pay the price for it did not take away our sins. Mm -hmm. Explain to us the difference there between the blood of the sacrifices and the blood of Christ and the permanent work of Christ compared to these sacrifices here. Right, so what the author of Hebrews wants to convey is the idea that the sacrifice of the lambs was a shadow of something that was to come. So it's a shadow in that it contains elements of the true thing that will one day be revealed but it in and of itself is not the true thing. So the elements that we see at play in the Passover lamb are the fact that the criteria for the lamb was that it was going to be a year old without blemish, right? Which means it's going to be young. It's going to be a promising lamb. It's going to be without blemish in the sense that it is arguably the best kind that you can have. And these elements... And the, and the fact that this is the type of lamb that God requires in order for an adequate sacrifice to be made prefigures the person of Christ, who we would also say had a spotless righteousness. He was without blemish. He was the best of humanity. He was the ideal man, even as he was God himself in the flesh. But this is the type of sacrifice that's required in order for God to adequately provide 
the atonement that we need for our sins. And so the sacrifice of the lambs in the Old Testament actually prefigures through its characteristics what the sacrifice in the New Testament should actually look like if it's going to fulfill the sacrifice of the Old Testament. The other thing that I want to mention on this idea is that if the Old Testament sacrifices were sufficient for our salvation, we would think that they wouldn't have to be sacrificed year after year. And I believe that's something that the author of Hebrews makes reference to. The fact that these sacrifices have to be continually sacrificed, and if this was to continue on into the future, we would have to say that they would be continually sacrificed indefinitely. There's no end to it. It would mean that God's wrath has not been completely appeased because there's always a need for another sacrifice, which means that there's always more wrath to be propitiated. We would think that if a sacrifice is complete, if it does the work in its entirety, God's wrath would be completely propitiated, which would mean we would only need one of these sacrifices, only one. And so that's a critical idea that's at play when we think about the Passover meal. Jesus talks about the bread and he talks about the wine, but why don't Christians, when we celebrate the Last Supper, use a Passover lamb as well? And it's because we don't need one anymore. That Passover lamb has already been crucified, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, and that Passover lamb was Christ. But the critical idea here is that we don't need Passover lambs anymore because the death of Christ was sufficient to take away the wrath of God. It completely propitiated, which is a fancy way of saying it turned away the wrath of God. It completely diverted the, way, the wrath of God so, such that there's no more wrath left for us. It completely took the wrath away, meaning that it doesn't need to be sacrificed again. Once was enough. And we could argue that that actually relates to Christology that can, that can tell us a little bit about who Jesus is in his nature. Because if Jesus' sacrifice is completely sufficient to propitiate or turn away the wrath of God from us, we can in some sense say that this could be because of his eternal nature. It's completely sufficient due to the fact that he has an eternal quality to him. Yes, being the eternal son of God, being God, he can atone for the sins of the whole world for yes. all time. Yeah. Well, John, that's a great summary of the Passover and the atoning work of Christ upon the cross here. But I think a question a lot of us have is, why did God choose the cross and yes. this gruesome form yes. of cruci and public humiliation of the Son of God there? Why did he choose that method? Why did he choose the cross? Okay, so what the Bible teaches is that before time began, God had already known and preconceived of in a sense, planned the way of salvation. He had known what was going to happen with his creation, even before cre he created us. And I think it expresses his compassion and his love to talk about the fact that he created us anyway, despite knowing what would happen. But the fact of the matter is that he knew his plan of salvation before he created us. All right, so we have that idea, and we have to hold it in one hand. But the other thing that we have to hold in hand was, was it completely necessary that God save us. If he knew what was going to happen, was he necessitated or was he forced to save us? And I would say that, no, he wasn't forced to save us. Uh, and this maybe touches a little bit on a different subject. I think God would have been completely just to let us make our free choices, being falling into sin, without providing a redemption. 
the fact of the matter is that he did choose to save us. All right, so we can get to the conclusion or we can get to the idea that God chose to save us and he chose before time began to save us. That's essentially what I've argued up, up until this point. Now we have to ask the question, was it necessary that God, before time began, destined Christ to die on a cross in the year 33 AD? Was it necessary that this happen in order to save us? Or conversely, could we say that, you know, God could have provided salvation through the death of Jesus in a different way? So could Jesus have simply been a soldier in maybe the Civil War in the 1860 in the United States? Could he have been maybe killed with a, a rifle shot? And would that have been sufficient for God to save us? Now, I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know if it was necessary that God save us in one way versus another. I think when it comes to the divine side of this, all that was required was that God's son be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, did this necessitate the cross? I don't know. But I can say it's plausible to think that if all we're looking at is the divine side, the death of Jesus could have happened in a different way and still accomplish that divine purpose. That divine purpose being satisfying the wrath of God and making amends in the relationship between humanity and God. However, the fact of the matter is that God did not choose to sacrifice his son in a way other than the cross. What we have and what we look at is the cross itself. Now, I haven't answered the question, was the cross necessary? And I haven't answered it because I don't know the answer to that question. What I can affirm is the idea that the cross reveals to humanity something about its true nature that the death of Jesus in a different way might not reveal. So if Jesus was simply killed on the battlefield of the Civil War or simply killed in a different way, we might not see ourselves in the same light that the cross reveals human's nature to us. And I just want to hit on a quote real quick that I used in one of my slides in the presentation last night. And it talks about how the cross reveals humanity, reveals true human nature in a way that is not immediately apparent. So one of these quotes is, the cross dramatizes on the outside what is going on on the inside. Jesus' crucified body becomes a portrait of what our fears and mistrust of God are doing to ourselves. So the cross on the outside is essentially a reflection of who we are on the inside, of what sin has done to humanity on the inside. What we look at and what we see as we look at the cross is God's view of sin. We look at the cross, we see this crucified man, we see his bleeding flesh on the cross, we see him bearing the wrath of God, and we look at ourselves and we have to conclude, this is how God sees us if we simply come to him as we are without any kind of atonement. This is how he sees us because this is the picture, this is what our sins have done to us. And we can picture our standing before God by looking at Jesus on the cross. This is the outward reflection of who we really are. Now, at the same time, surrounding the cross are a number of human failures, which kind of hits at a different idea. And that's that not only is the cross this outward reflection of humanity's true nature, but the cross is the unveiling of humanity's true nature at the same time. And it's the unveiling of humanity's true nature in showing or pointing us to all the sin that actually surrounded the death of Jesus. So in Jesus's death, you have a number of human failures that 
contribute to the fact that he ultimately ends up on the cross in an unjust manner. So Caiaphas, the high priest, accused him of blasphemy. Pilate, the judge, unjustifiably crucifies him. Peter denies Jesus and runs away. All the disciples forsake him and flee. There are people that mock him. There are people that rip out his beard. There are people that spit on him. All of this stuff happens to him. What we see in this are all the individual failings that are happening at the cross. And this is God's revelation to humanity, not just of his love, but also of our true condition, right? So the fact that the cross happened in this way means that there's a twofold element of revelation that we have to kind of wrestle with. One of them is God's love for us and the fact that he went to this extreme in order to prove to us that he does love us. But another thing that we have to wrestle with is the fact that the cross reveals to us who we really are. And it does so by showing us societally how we act, how we can be so easily swayed to cave to maybe peer pressure or the demands of injustice. It shows us who we really are. And I just want to kind of hit on a quote that talks about this dual nature of the cross real quick. And it's from John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says, it is essential to keep together these two complementary ways of looking at the cross. On the human level, Judas gave him, him being Jesus, up to the priests, who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers who crucified him. But on the divine level, the Father gave him up, and he gave himself up to die for us. As we face the cross, then, we can say to ourselves both, I did, I did it, my sins sent him there, and he did it, his love took him there. So, in the cross, God reveals to us our true nature. We see the fact that our sins sent him to the cross. We see the fact that our sins crucified Jesus, but we also see the fact that God's love took him to the cross. So to answer your question, was it necessary that God save us in this way? I don't know. But the fact is that because he did save us in this way, we gain knowledge or he's revealed to us two aspects that are critical for our understanding and that are critical for the application of salvation in our lives as well. Yes, uh, I think it's a fantastic picture that the cross reveals to us the ugliness of our sin right. and what it's done to us, the tremendous cost for our salvation and the love of God that overcomes all of that. I, th I think it's, it's, although a gruesome sight, it was a unforgettable kind of illustration of all three of those, and which is just fantastic. So, John, in just the final closing here, we got one minute left. The study of the Passover, the crucifixion of Christ, the atonement, this great study uh, that you did, how has that changed your understanding and the value you have for the work of Christ on the cross? I think, you know, I'm so familiar with this story. So in familiarity, I don't know if you've ever heard the saying that familiarity breeds contempt. I don't want to ever feel that way about this story. I don't want to ever feel that way about the crucifixion. But my idea is that if you can look at it and see it in a new light, maybe you will become unfamiliar with it again. And maybe you will once again feel as though you're hearing it for the first time. So in studying the atonement, I would say this time around, I don't feel like I've completely experienced a revolution in my thoughts about the cross. But I would say that maybe, just maybe, I've begun to see it as though it's unfamiliar to me again, as, as, as though God's love as something to be wondered at. Yes, uh, hope you gain new insight and understanding from all that is going on regarding the Last Supper and the new meaning that Christ gives to the Passover and the death 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I hope this interview has been insightful for you and brings you new insight on the great work of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to Evidence and Answers, our interview with John Blassingame. He's just about going to finish his Master's of Arts in Christian Studies at Pacific Rim University. So, John, I'm sure we'll have you back on the show again. Thanks for sharing your insights on Christ and the Passover. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Our time today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, your Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may donate right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharak.